Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaui, and I'm joined by the cast and crew, Matthew Lee Anderson and Alistair Roberts. And uh, today we're going to be taking up uh, kind of a special theological issue, uh, just having a straightforward discussion, no guests, no frills. Uh, but, but what we want to do is take up a, a unique issue the O Felix Culpa or the happy fault um, kind of line of thought in in uh, Christian theology. And I, for, I first encountered this, and, and maybe you guys can set the groundwork historically a little different. I first encountered this line of thought in an interesting article by Alvin Plantinga uh, in Theodicy. And the nutshell of the, of the Felix Culpa line of thought is that um, the idea is that that Oh, happy fault! Uh, oh, oh, happy fault of Adam's sin, right? The idea that Adam's sin was, in a sense, a blessing because through Adam's sin we got Christ. If if Adam had not sinned, we would not have received the blessing of the incarnation and the atonement and the work of God on our behalf in salvation. And so, in a sense, uh, Adam's sin was intended precisely for the sake of. Christ's atonement. Now, planning his article, which is interesting, but we might link it in the notes. He works that into a kind of a modern theodicy, sort of a sort of a thought experiment about whether or not that would justify creating world with that he knew would include massive amounts of evil and suffering. Um, but we wanted to take up that theme, that that thought, that proposal, that in a sense. Adam's sin and the whole of human history was aimed at and, 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 and is justified, in a sense, by Christ's incarnation and atonement and work. And so, in order to kind of get us into that more and maybe bring up some of the issues, the problems, the paradoxes with that, I'm going to pitch it to Alistair and, uh, and just see, Alistair, where, where does that, how does that, how does that, how how inclined are you to accept this proposition, or or how would you develop the thought, or or, or questions you'd you'd want to discuss and answer about it? Just so we're clear, um, Alistair, we just want to make sure that we're clear that Derek, when you say bring up some things, you really just mean answer the question for us. Can we just lay that out up front? Well, we'll kind of keep it a little bit more of a roundabout way, okay. but yeah, something like that. Give us something to argue with, Alistair. There are a number of things that are tied to this debate when we pick it apart. Um, first of all, we can view the sin of Adam from a number of different perspectives. If we view it purely as the sin of Adam and saying that Adam's sin, um, that human sin led to good things um, for humanity, that raises questions about the relationship between evil and God's purpose, that evil would be necessary for God's purpose. God's purpose can be achieved through evil things, but the fact that evil would be necessary for God's good purpose to um, take place raises very specific questions of theodicy and how God's justice fits in with the problems of evil and suffering. But when we view the sin of Adam from a different perspective, there can be other possibilities that are opened up to us. So, for instance, the sin of Adam occurred through the instigation of Satan, and Satan's sin, could that be a happy fault for humanity? That Satan, as the um, morning star, he falls and his place needs to be taken. And 
it's that that leads to the benefit of humanity. That's an interesting way of viewing it, because that doesn't raise quite the same problems if you approach it um, in a different... If you approach it from that angle, there are different possibilities that are opened up. Another thing is the question of the order of God's decrees, which has been a long-term debate within Calvinist circles, um, between infralapsarians, supralapsarians, and thinking about the logical order of God's decree. Does the decree of election come after the decree of logically follow after the decree of the fall or does it precede it and then there's related to this there are questions of christological superlapsarianism as we could put it the idea that god as the primary purpose of all creation that he intended to consummate the creation in his son that's one position that would lead to a rejection of the felix cooper approach on the other hand, if we have a more infralapsarian approach, it would seem to move us towards that possibility, even if it does not put us directly in the position of affirming that possibility, because there's still a contingency in God's purpose that um, is defined by his will, not by the sin itself. And these are some of the questions that I hope we tease out a bit in the course of the next half hour or so. This is what we were looking for. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, Matt, any of these questions you wanted to take up? Yeah, Alistair, I'm curious to think through some of the uh, the claim about the necessity of evil for God's purposes that ascribing or the affirming something like a Felix Culpa would commit one to. It seems like there are ways in which one could say uh, that it was a good that the fall happened, uh, that uh, because we got Christ, without that necessarily entailing that the fall itself is necessary for the purposes of God to come to pass. So one 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 major question it seems in uh, framing that that idea of that that. Uh, the Felix Culpa commits one to the necessity of evil for God's purposes is whether Christ would have become incarnate absent any uh, type of uh, fall. And if he would have, then there's a, a conditional that the, the, the evil is still conditional, right? You still are able to say God could have achieved his purposes absent the fall, but there is something distinct uh, where uh, that the fall happened. We're able to look at it and say it's a happy thing because God achieved his purposes. And that's more a claim about um, the sense we make of evil and suffering in its redemptive mode, as it were, and in uh in response to, or as we as we sort of frame it in light of the resurrection, um, then it is about God and the necessity upon His being to act in this particular way or to create the world in this particular way. Does that make sense? It does. I think we can also see a number of occasions within Scripture where there are things that are presented as, for want of a better word, happy faults. Um, things that human beings intended for evil and yet God brought about for good. So 
the brothers of Joseph sending him into slavery in Egypt, that God used that to bring about great good in the same way that God, um, according to his foreknowledge and predestination, um, all of the events surrounding the crucifixion occurred. But yet that sinful action was something that led to the salvation of all humanity, of the human race has been um, brought into a knowledge of God's salvation as a result of the cross. And so there are ways in which we have to deal with sin and God's purpose in ways that do bring deeply sinful actions alongside the greatest of goods that God has intended. When that comes to the question of the original entrance of sin into the world, however, specific further questions are raised because we're not just talking about how God used the actions of sinful men for his purposes. We're talking about God allowing sin to enter into the world in the first place for his good purposes. So one, in the former case, it's a lot easier to see that God can use the sort of momentum of the sinner against them in a sort of judo move, um, that he uses that action in a way that subverts their intent. But in the case of the entrance of sin into the world in the first place and the presence of sin in the world itself, I think that's why some of the questions surrounding Felix Culpa are particularly pronounced um, questions of theodicy in ways that we don't find to the same extent in the context of the cross, even though we see the starkest of ju juxtapositions between God's good purpose and humans' evil intent. Yeah. So with that, the, the interesting thing, I, I'm going to refer back to that uh, planning article. So his argument comes as a form of theodicy, and he, he kind of appeals to possible worlds theory. Not, not kind of, he does. And, and sort of argues... Um, if you think of all the best possible worlds, uh, the best ones will obviously involve the existence of God. So we'll put that, put that aside, but the existence of God, uh, coming in or assumed, uh, the best possible worlds are those which contain the best possible goods, the greatest possible good. And so there's no greater good than can be imagined than the incarnation and atonement of the son. But that is predicated on allowing fairly massive amounts of sin and evil to happen. Now, he pairs that with, uh, I think, at least so far as I can remember the argument, and I can remember Planiga's, um theology, he pairs that with a, an account of libertarian, libertarian agency. And so there's a sense in which he's got a strong sense of permission, but it's permission unto um, a possible world in which the incarnation and atonement become possible and indeed necessary. And so it's ordered towards creating the best, one of the best possible universes, possibly the best possible universe, uh, which has that, but that necessarily includes the possibility and the necessity of, of, of freely chosen evil and sin and suffering. So it's not, it's not even just a super lapsarian Christology where Christ would have been, um, become incarnate anyways, um, no, it's specifically that kind of incarnation and atonement that he's looking for. And that just constitutes it as an overall 
maximally great state of affairs because of that act. And, and it's kind of like an overriding, this is that, yeah, that evil and suffering are baked into the total picture, even if they're not the, they're not, um, they're not what's intended. They're intended. What's intended is the goodness, not the evil, but the evil's necessity to the goodness. So that that's, that's on that formulation. Yeah. The problem that you're raising is, is, is very, it's very pressing. It's poignant in, in there. So, um, Al, you want to follow up there? I find the idea of God choosing between possible worlds in the context of creation to be a, a misleading way of thinking about things. Fair. Not least because it suggests that there is a prior possibility that exists apart from, or arguably it suggests that there's a prior possibility that exists apart from God's creative work, um, that it stands over against him and God as a as it were, is sitting in front of the celestial computer in the sky, selecting the different options to set up his world in this great big God sim, um, computer game type thing. But that's not how uh, I think an orthodox doctrine of God's creation would understand it. That God's creation is something that is not a choice between possible worlds. There are inherent possibilities in the things that have been created, but when the world is brought out of nothing, it's not um, a choice between possibilities. Rather, it's the creation of possibilities in the first place. And well, there I, I have reservations about... Yeah, but even there, I think we're kind of... I, possible worlds language is just... It's a, it's a way of speaking of different modalities. And to some degree, there's... It's not actually like looking at... It's not actually like he's looking at billion, you know, millions and billions of possibilities on a computer screen and picking yes that one that anyway the small defense of the way analytic folks talk um not that that's the way i usually go about it but i don't think it's i don't think we should kind of reify that language beyond what they would usually do but carry on carry on i'm just wondering that in this as it applies to this specific question um i'm wondering whether it leads us to a misunderstanding of the exact ways in which the creation and um, thinking about necessary necessity and contingency in relationship to the creation, the notion of possible worlds may set us off on the wrong foot. And so, for instance, God's, when you think about a great artist who draws a painting, um, it can be, or paints a painting, it can be misleading to think that entire artistic work is chosen over against hypothetical other works. Rather, it's a free action that is expressive and beautiful and um, a manifestation of the skill of the artist, but it's not necessarily positioned over against all these other hypothetical works that could have been painted. It's something that has an integrity of its own. And its possibility is not defined over against those. Yeah, that's true. But it also is um, one among many options that they could have chosen to paint. So it's 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 true that possibilities are indexed or determined according to the whatness of the thing that's being considered. Um, but it's also true that in the act of creating, uh, where we are uh, choosing to make. The, a, a thing that has a whatness, a thing that has a form, that we have the option to make this thing with this particular form or that thing with that particular form. And uh, it's, it's, you know, creation is the creation of possibilities um, 
itself just seems to sidestep the question that uh, there is a bounded set of options, presumably, that God could choose from, unless you just want to say that um, this is not only the best of all possible worlds, but the only possible world based on God's existence and the the particular whatness of uh, his inner life and the particular overflow of his inner life in the act of creating. Um, And if there are possibilities, if God could have created um, alternate worlds, then I think the the questions that Derek are raising um, do apply or the way in which he's uh, trying to address the questions does seem like one possible way of doing it. Um, yeah, it's, it is true. You're right that it can set us off on the wrong foot, but, but that's not intrinsically an objection to the framework. I mean, there are questions that we should ask about the particular form in which a particular creation has occurred. But when we're talking about the best of all possible worlds, I think that we're setting ourselves up to compare all these different possible worlds in a way that can be misleading. So, for instance, if we um, thought about paintings that different artists are producing, did um, Leonardo da Vinci set out to paint the best possible painting when he created the Mona Lisa. Maybe he did, but I don't think it was the possibility of that particular work of art and the question of why did you paint this particular thing in the way that you did. I don't think that those questions are best answered in terms of comparison to all these other hypothetical things that could have been created. Rather, there's an integrity to that particular thing that was created. And in creating that particular thing, Leonardo da Vinci created it in the best possible ways that he could create that particular thing. And I think that's a different way of thinking about creation than the best possible world's approach suggests. I just I just don't think that we have a lot of hypothetical options that God is choosing between. Um, and even when we're applying, thinking about human creation, that way of thinking doesn't seem to apply. We do have choices and there are decisions. It's a heuristic though. There's, there's Necessarily by, by bringing up the Felix Culpa question, you're bringing up the question of whether or not the world could have been another way, whether or not it would have been better if the world had been another way, in which case we're talking about other ways the world could have been. So we don't have to talk about possible worlds. We can just talk about how this world could have been different and the different options we could have had, he, God could have taken uh, in designing, you know, or, or, or decreeing or creating this one. Uh, but you still end up basically sliding into the same sort of reasoning. But then that's a different question, because we're not comparing possible worlds, we're comparing this world and different ways of forming this world. Right, exactly. But that's just that's just a different way of talking about possible worlds modality. But it's an important difference. It's not, it's not that important, in my opinion. So um, <laughs> anyway, I don't know if we want to press on uh, but um, taking up the issue of necessity, though, uh, whether or not Felix Kulpa requires evil and in what way um, to God's plans, that Derek, that that brings up the issue of the yeah, go for it. 
Yeah, let me let me let me just say I, I I think there is a question here about whether it is that important, and um, I I think that is a question I'd like to hear Alistair address because it seems like if you reject the the language of modalities, um, the question of the Felix culpa falls to the ground. It just becomes a non-question, um, and from that standpoint, like I actually I actually like really sympathize Alistair with um, what you're saying and uh, think that you're right. And I have my own reservations about speaking about creation in terms of modalities, but I also am entirely unmoved by the question of Felix culpa. Like to me, it's, it's not the sort of thing that I have ever been worked up about. I, I, I can see what sorts of theological uh, issues emerge from it, but I'm not, uh, particularly motivated to approach those theological issues through the lens of the Felix culpa because they can arise on other terms as well. Uh, and it seems like if you don't have something like modalities with respect to the work of creating, then the, the whole question of the Felix culpa becomes just a non-question, uh, such that it, it that, such that there is, you know, no further point to the discussion. And so I, I'd be interested to hear, Alistair, you know, what you like within your understanding of rejecting modalities as an analysis for um, God's creation and God's choice in creating this or that, um, how you reconcile that with considerations of the Felix Culpa. Well, I think at the very outset, my chief concern is about the language of modalities as it, as it applies to the act of creation itself. And so what we're talking about in the case of the entrance of sin into the world is not is something slightly different from that. So we're not talking about God selecting an um, among a possibility of worlds that he could pull off the rack. One has sin, one doesn't have sin. Um, rather, it's... Um, a recognition that in creating this particular world, God could have created it in a number of different ways. There's the way in which he does create it and the way in which he does form its history and develop it through his providence is one that does allow for the entrance of sin. And that entrance of sin is something that is consistent with the goodness of God's purpose. But it's not framed in terms of the act of creation itself at the very outset that God chooses between possible worlds. Rather, it's recognising that God creates this particular world in a way that is good, which allows for that. But it's not designed to be compared to other worlds in a way that say that says that God couldn't have done things otherwise and it'd be good in that other way. So, for instance, God could have created human beings to be green creatures living on Mars or created a different solar system. Um, he didn't. And it's just unhelpful, I think, to compare that to the world that we currently have. What we can think about is the possibilities inherent within the creation that God did create and why he um, created, why he, in his providence, rules that they take the form that they do. That is not the same question as the question of possible worlds as such. And so when we're talking about the sin of Adam, I think 
we can see God's providence involved in that. And we do need to see it as involving some sort of decision or some um, choice on God's part. But that is a different thing from modalities applied to the, the very the essential act of creation itself. Rather, it's recognising just these possibilities inherent within this particular creation. And how did God create this creation in a way that's good? And then we can see how this creation is good in its own terms without necessarily comparing it to all these other possible worlds that God could have created. Except I think, Alistair, the, the difficulty is that in an act of creatio ex nihilo, um, the assessing the value of the creation of its, itself um, in, just requires the comparative context. It does, but it's a, it's a comparative context inherent to the, what has been brought from nothing. It's not a comparative um, comparison between a lot of different things that could have been brought from nothing. But, but modal possibilities are still conditioned by... So there's, there's I think, a, um, a slightly cynical take on the language of possible worlds um, and how philosophers are using them because mo modal possibilities are conditioned by this world such that they will talk about nearness or farness and uh, in terms of the possible worlds and it's not a picking off the rack type of thing so I think I think that's 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 a little it's and 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 I think the question for you would be something like that I'd have um, is do comparative analyses have any weight in determining the moral worth of things. So set aside for a second creation. Um, my life, if I choose X, I evaluate X based on the way in which I think it goes. If I choose Y, I evaluate it on the way that I think it goes. And it seems like there are, between X and Y, intrinsic values that I can assess. There's a, 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 um, an inner logic to each of those choices. One might be intrinsically right, one might be intrinsically wrong. So I can assess that way, but then I still have to make a decision between those two. And it seems like there are certain values to comparing those two options in a way that they clarify for me what I could do. Right or which which one I would reasonably want to do, and it might be the case that upon that comparison, I would reasonably want to do one rather than the other, um, and say in one sense one would be better than the other, um, without necessarily saying that it's necessary for me to do one rather than the other. So I think like part of the question is just about how comparative claims work in moral decision-making because the act of creating for God and for us is a moral action. That's partly what the grammar of Felix Culpa, um, in as much as that's a question about God, uh, seems to convey. I think the key point that I'm trying to press on is the difference between language and modalities as replied to our actions within a created order where we have to um, take decisions in terms of particular possibilities and options and language and modalities as it's applied to God's work in providence and creation where it's more akin to a work of 
mean, the closest analogies that we have to that, I think, are works of art, or literature or something like that, where the language of modalities has to be used in a far more um, tempered way. Um, so why did Beethoven have this particular set of notes within his symphony rather than that other set of notes? That can be an unhelpful and misleading question just because of the very nature of the work of creation. It has a different character to it than actions within a frame of possibilities that is already set for us. It creates its own possibilities and its products have their own integrity that can't as easily be compared to other possibilities within a framework of modalities. That doesn't mean that there isn't any comparison to be made or any sense of choice, but it isn't the same as action within my life, for instance, in deciding what I do next. Okay. Um, yeah, at, th at this point, I think there's, there's just, there's a, there's a semantic slippage that, I mean, I think analytic folks who use possible worlds language are doing a particular thing. And I think Alistair, I, I, I don't think you're actually grappling with what they're doing with that kind of monotony language because of its possible connotations or resonances or the kind of picture that it puts forward, but it's not actually what I, 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 I just think this is partially semantic because at some point you have to say, okay, but when Matt brought up the choice X, choice Y, okay, say that's within the world. An analytic guy is going to be like, okay, well, in the possible world where Matt chooses X versus the possible world where Matt chooses Y, and they're both they both have the same initial creation conditions, the same initial possibilities. It's literally just a it's 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 a it's a phrase that says now this new collocation of all the total states of affairs that are together lump that's that's a possible world where Matt chose X versus Matt chose Y. That that that's 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 what the language is doing basically. Yeah, I have no problem with that applied to Matt's action. The problem is that that's not how God relates to the world. And I mean, I've, uh, wow, <laughs> I've mostly got this from von Balthasar. Well, at that point, yeah, okay, bring in simplicity, bring in analogy, all that. We have all those qualifiers and, and I'm with you to that degree. But to some degree, we have to think analogically here. Uh, I mean, we can think analogically, but I'm arguing that if we are going to think analogically about God's creative action and modalities in that context, then we need to think in terms of the analogies of human creation. But but that's what it, but who, who's not doing that? So for instance, why is it that um, an author has written a, a character in a particular I don't way? think anyone disagrees with that. Um, yeah, I don't think any, anyone disagrees with that claim though. Yeah, like... I think that people are being careless though in the way that they're using the language of possible worlds and not thinking carefully enough about the specific sort of modalities that we're talking about and that we really need to be thinking about when we're talking about questions like um, the Felix Culpa. Okay. Okay, I'll just go with that and let's move on to the next section. Uh, next question here related <laughs> to it. I, 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 I'm not going to, I'm not going to keep parsing that. Um, I think the question then when it comes to thinking these sorts of things through is um, the moral purposes, you know, that the, the, the does Felix Kulpa kind of turn into, and this is again, something planning raises, um, does it kind of turn into a sort of a, a Munchausen by proxy kind of 
situation where the good that's achieved, the glory that's achieved comes at the great cost, at the cost of great human suffering and evil. Um, is that what's going on in that sort of defense? Is that, is that, is that a moral possibility we have to reckon with? Or is that again, just an analogy we can't really make given God's unique relationship to the world. Uh, that, that's, that's one that kind of, um, sticks with me when I think about these, these, these problems, parsing the decree, parsing the goodness of, of the incarnation and atonement over and against all of human history and all of human suffering. Uh, so I'm curious what you, maybe Matt or Al, what would you guys think about that one? That's, that's that's the moral that's the moral consideration that I worry about. Um, yeah. Neither of us wants to answer that, Derek. Um, and the reason why I don't want to answer is because I've, I'm terrified it's going to take us back into the scrum that we just left. I mean, this is, this is this is partly this is partly my difficulty is right. Um, you know, Alistair's claim that we, that, you know, sort of dismissal of my analogy to moral action for God and just claiming that that's not how God relates to the world sets the question of the Felix Culpa on terms that are totally disconnected from how we evaluate morality and how moral action goes for us. And from my standpoint, that's I understand the kind of aesthetic and and narratival dimensions of God's creative action, and I think I even have a a way of understanding how that relates to um, the moral life and moral choices. But I also think there is a um, is an analogy between how we assess the world morally and our own lives morally and how God creates such that something like the doctrine of double effect um, becomes really relevant to uh, the way in which we understand God's creation in his relationship to evil, right? Doctrine of double effect is essentially what you articulated by way of Plantinga at the very end of your exposition uh, that there's um, goods and uh, we intend good things and under lots of conditions and constraints, if we intend goods, it is morally acceptable to accept negative uh, side effects or byproducts uh, of the good things that we intend. But when we when when push comes to shove, we will good things and we don't will the bad things. And I think something like that kind of analysis is to me essential for uh, construing God's creative action and his relationship to the, uh, uh, to the evil that he allows uh, without willing and all of the sort of choices that he makes uh, in his eternity in response to that evil. Yeah, so that's, 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 that's kind of how 
I view that dimension of some of the questions that the Felix Culpa raises. That's useful. For me, I would see it very much as a more sort of aesthetic um, criterion for thinking about God's action in relationship to that, that God is the one who, in his sovereignty, um, determines, as it were, he's the great author of human history. And as such, there are moral considerations that is the creation that he creates good is his relationship to it good and there is also the sense of the creation taken as a whole its narrative form and direction is that good and i think in that respect the the sin of adam fits in in a way that is positive within god's decree and his purpose and his ordering of um his creation. Now that's a slightly different question from the question of how God relates to that sin itself taken in and of itself as an action in the same way as we might think about um, how an author relates to one of their wicked characters. Um, there is a way in which an author can relate to a wicked character that can itself be wicked because they can hold up that character for emulation. They can um, have a relationship with that character that justifies what they do. Whereas there are other ways in which an author can relate to their character that, despite the wickedness of their character, that wickedness is used to bring about good ends, to produce something that is beautiful. And I would think when we're thinking about the Felix Culpa, when we're thinking about the sin of Adam, that is more the sort of angle of approach that I would take to it. And then when we're thinking about its necessity, I think that that relieves the sense of its necessity. God could have done things differently. Um, in terms of the possibilities inherent to the creation that he created, I don't think it was necessary. I think that Christ would have come up anyway. I think we've discussed this before. Um, and so I don't think it was necessary in that respect. But I think that God created it th this way is... and formed human history this way is something that needs explanation and account for and on that aesthet more aesthetic account i think we should say that it god has determined to create the world this way to form its history and that that is good um, there is a fittingness to that and within god's purpose that leads to a sense that Although we can speak about other possibilities of the way that God could work things out within the constraints of this particular creation, um, those other possibilities don't have the same weight as they would do otherwise, because God chose, in fact, to bring things about this way, and this way is good. Man, um, I really, really wish we could follow up here uh, on, on, on some of that. Um, we, we may just have to have another whole episode on double effect and modality and uh, and uh, and analogies for God's creation simply because I think yeah the, the novelistic I'm not sure that our listeners would be patient enough no may, we, this that. may just have to happen I mean, this off. is it, this is deep theological nerdery here <laughs> this may just have to happen offline here and and then we can show you the error of your ways but um, for now, uh, this was interesting and, and stimulating to 
get me going on the rest of my day of thinking. Uh, but if you've been listening, once again, thanks again, thanks for listening. Uh, this has been Mere Fidelity. Mm-hmm.